Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel recorded for you in Holy Scripture all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, March 18th, we are studying Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. Having met every challenge his opponents threw at him, Jesus now turns to the crowds and his disciples in order to warn them against falling into the same errors as the scribes and the Pharisees. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeff Hemmer. Pastor Hemmer serves at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois. Pastor Hemmer, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's good to be with you, Pastor Apple. As we get started this morning, Pastor Hemmer, give us some context here in Matthew's Gospel. Where have we been? What do we need to know leading up to today's text? So we, we've just come out of uh, some interaction back in chapter 22 between Jesus and the Pharisees. Uh, he's been questioned by them about paying taxes to Caesar, for instance. Uh, not an innocent question. They attempt to trap him. The Sadducees follow up with a, with a question about the resurrection. And all these groups approaching Jesus, it's sort of building to a head that they, they want to demonstrate that Jesus is a lawbreaker, a rebel, blasphemous, deserving of death. Uh, and towards the end of chapter 22, Jesus rebukes the Sadducees, uh, and it sort of covers over the rebuke of all those who have tried to, to catch him teaching contrary to the Word of God. He says, you are wrong. You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And then uh, he responds to all of this questioning by asking the Pharisees a question, that is, a question about himself. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they give their answer. Jesus follows up with a question, if he's the son of David, how is it that David calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet? Uh, so Jesus' final question if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And then the last verse of chapter 22, no one is able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. And then Jesus will embark on a very stinging rebuke of the Pharisees and the scribes, not precisely directed to them, but rather to his disciples, the crowd who's been all around him, uh, for these chapters here towards the end of the gospel, according to Matthew, he will warn them to beware of the false teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he will culminate, after our section this morning, he'll culminate with uh, what are called the seven woes against the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, very precise language, very condemning language. Those woes, against the Pharisees and the scribes are sort of the opposite of how Jesus began his catechesis in the gospel according to St. Matthew back in chapter 5 with the Beatitudes, which he gives to his disciples. So he gives blessing to those, blessed are those, blessed are you, 
in the Beatitudes to those who are willing to hear his word, willing to be instructed by him, but he gives these, these crushing woes to the scribes and the Pharisees, those who are unwilling to be taught by him, unwilling to receive the word of God as it is, and who want to depend upon their own righteousness. Um, and then, uh, starting in chapter 24, we'll move into Jesus' Olivet Discourse, um, where he's, uh, in, in a similar fashion to the Sermon on the Mount that followed the Beatitudes, now following these woes, he'll catechize his disciples uh, from the Mount of Olives, telling them about the things that are to come. And all of that will prepare them to witness his crucifixion, pave the way for for their reception of his resurrection, and then his giving them his commandment to, to baptize, to bring all nations into this kingdom over which Jesus reigns as king by means of uh, baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So right here, uh, the beginning of chapter 23 is Jesus' final words to, or words about, to, about the scribes and the Pharisees. So his final answer is word of condemnation against them for their unbelief. It it is a a back and forth between Jesus and his opponents that we've been witnessing since he's entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and then come back on on Holy Monday for for more of this back and forth and this is going to be the the final word that Jesus gets and as you were going through the the previous chapters what what stands out is is that Jesus does get that that final question just in the the, the end of the preceding chapter. That, that he comes along and asks them a question after having received so many from them. Now he asks the question, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And, and I think that's important that that's what we've just heard because they're not able to connect that question to him. And, and ultimately, when it comes to the scribes and Pharisees, that's their big problem. We'll talk about the other, you know, their legalism and, and such things. But ultimately, what's wrong with them is that they have not recognized, they have not believed that Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, and also David's Lord. And, and that, that question, I think, really sets the stage for these condemnations of the Pharisees and their teaching that we're going to see here in chapter 23. Yep. So let's go ahead and take a look at the text for today. We've got the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 23 today. Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay on them lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's the text for today. 
Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. So, Pastor Hammer, the, the text starts by identifying the audience for us. And, and maybe we just, without passing over it too quickly, this is speaking to the crowds and the disciples. Are the Pharisees there? Do they overhear this? How, how should we understand the audience? Why is that important? Well, presumably the, the Pharisees and the scribes are there, Um the, 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 the verse then, Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, seems to imply a, a continuity of time with the interaction Jesus had before. But it, it, it is as if he turns away from the questioning from the Pharisees and the scribes and those who are opposed to him, and he turns to those who are receptive to the word. And in turning to them, he warns them about the false teaching of, of the Pharisees and the scribes, and there's, it's hard to distinguish between those who are numbered among the crowds and those who are numbered among his disciples. He has, uh, at various times, crowds of, of hundreds, sometimes thousands, who are following him, um, hundreds of them disciples, those who are willing to be taught by him, willing to receive the word of God from him. Um, so it, it's probably okay to assume that, that the scribes and the Pharisees are still there and and overhearing his his warning against them but for all intents and purposes he's he's done with them even even the woes that he will pronounce uh, starting in verse 13 those still seem to be directed to the crowd as as part of this warning, to avoid the the teaching and and the well really also the, the deeds of the scribes and the Pharisees. So he's not addressing the Pharisees directly. He's done uh, sparring with them, you might say, and now he's just going to come out and and warn those who would be willing to listen. Here's why you shouldn't listen to these scribes and Pharisees. Although he does that in in maybe a, a, in a unique way. Jesus starts his address to the the crowds and to the disciples by saying that the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. What what's going on here, Pastor Hammer? What it what is Moses' seat? What does it mean for the scribes and the Pharisees to sit there? I mean, is is Jesus somehow endorsing the scribes and the Pharisees here? What's going on? Well, they're heirs to uh, the teaching of Moses, Moses being the lawgiver, the one who's received the commandments on Mount Sinai, the five books of Moses, uh, the, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, sort of symbolizing being a part for the whole of, of all the scriptures. Um, now, Moses is not exclusively a lawgiver. Uh, the, the Word of God is chocked full of promises of the one who was to come, a prophet greater than Moses. Um, and that, of course, is the one catechizing right now. But in, in their being heirs of Moses' teaching, when they, when they teach the Word, when they speak the Word, he says, practice and observe what they tell you. The problem is the Pharisees and the scribes are maybe when they're teaching the Word, uh, 
that's fine, but then they're not able to receive even their own teaching. They're not able to receive the, the teaching of Moses, though they might occupy the place of Moses sitting and teaching uh, in in his position, as it were. Um, but they're, as we'll see as it gets into uh, the next few verses, they're not relying on a righteousness from outside of themselves. They're distorting and mishearing the word of Moses to think that the law might be something achievable, something that by their own works and their own righteousness they could do. And worse than that, that elicits for them the, the praise of, of others so that they are lauded for their righteousness uh, and sort of envied for their righteousness. So stay away from that, but do, when they teach the word to you, then, then you may hear and, and do the word. So it's always the word that carries the power with it. We say a, a similar thing in uh, the Augsburg Confession, Article 8, after talking in Article 7 about what the Church is, the place where the Gospel is rightly proclaimed and the sacraments rightly administered, then in Article 8 we say that even when evil men administer the sacraments, they are nevertheless God's work, so they do what He intends to do through them. A, a hammer with a, you know, a broken shaft could still be used to drive a nail, a, a dysfunctional tool in the hand of a, of a skillful craftsman can still can still accomplish something. So even when the Pharisees and the scribes themselves are wicked and damned, cut off from the people of God by their reliance on their own righteousness, when they teach the Word of God, it is the Word of God that has the power. It is the Spirit at work in those words to convert and to draw sinners to repentance, to, to observe their own failure to keep the Word, and to live according to the righteousness that the Mosaic Law commands to have. So when they, when they teach the Word, it is meet, right, and salutary, but the example by which they live is not to be followed. So, for example, if, if the Pharisees were, were in the synagogue, if a Pharisee was in the synagogue, and he read the Ten Commandments from the book of Exodus to the people, Jesus would, would be saying, do those things, listen to that. But, but when the Pharisee would, would start expounding upon that law and, and in the way that they would live that law, and they would maybe put this fence around the law, which maybe we'll talk about in, in a bit, or they'll, they'll add commandments to the law. Or, or for example, when uh, in Matthew chapter 15, where Jesus brings up their example of setting a human tradition above the law, that would be the example of the things that the Pharisees are doing that Jesus says, don't do that. Listen to what they say when it comes to repeating the scriptures. But don't exactly. listen, don't follow when they start giving their flawed interpretations, whether that is by perhaps the sermons that, that they would have preached, or especially in the deeds that they were doing. Exactly. So, so Pastor Hemmer, and, and this is just me sort of thinking now, in terms of application for us, the New Testament and other places, Paul in his epistles talks about avoiding false teachers. So, I mean, here we've got false teachers, and, and you brought up the example from the Augsburg Confession that, that even evil men, when they speak the word, the word carries the power. H how do we as Christians live in, in that tension? When, when does a, a teacher become a false teacher that we should mark and avoid and flee 
versus what, I mean, what's, what's the practical application of something like that? Well, I think Jesus is definitely exposing the Pharisees and the scribes as false teachers to be avoided, but, but he's extolling the word of God such that even, even when it's proclaimed by a false teacher, it's still the true word of God. So there's, there's a difference, I tell folks, between uh, studying the word sort of academically and, and receiving the word devotionally. Uh, those are, and those are sort of two different ways to approach the word of God. On, on Sunday morning, for instance, when, when we gather with all the people of God, we don't want to come having to put on uh, a filter that we have to filter out what's true from what's false. That's why we gather uh, with people who share a common confession with us. It's why we, we call pastors uh, and they, they say of the Lutheran confessions, I make these confessions my own because they are in accord with the Word of God. And we expect that confession of the faith, um, the clear exposition of the Word of God contained in those confessions, to really shape what our pastor's speech keeps. So that hopefully we don't have to show up on a Sunday morning and say, now I know the guy's a heretic, but he says some good things in his sermon, so let's listen for the good things and filter out the, the harmful things. On, on Sunday morning or in our, in our daily devotions, we want to use things that we know are safe, that we know are, are pure, that have been vetted by time, by the consensus of other Christians, those kinds of things. But when we, when we sit down to study the Word uh, and we approach it more academically, then, then we do have a filter on to sort out what's true from what's false, and so in, in that regard, um, a teacher who doesn't share, maybe you would say, our understanding of baptism may nevertheless have something helpful to say about something else. Or we could read a, a commentary on the scriptures written by a Roman Catholic, knowing that he will bring his own Roman Catholic perspective on the text in, in how he interprets the Word of God, and yet there may be something profitable that, that we can glean from that. So there's, there's, no, there's no room for false teachers, nor even room for, for teachers with whom we, we disagree with their interpretation of Scripture, who read Scripture through a different lens other than through Jesus Christ and crucified, who understand the Church differently, who believe that forgiveness might be accessible outside of God's means of grace, um, that we don't, we don't want to receive that kind of teaching when, when we're sitting down simply to be fed. But when we're approaching the Word academically, we're sort of uh, debating with other people about what the Word of God says, whether actively in person or by means of just reading what someone else has, has written, then we, then we don't need to have teachers who, who are pure. And so that's in as much as the Pharisees are giving the clear word of God, then, then what they give can be received. Practice and observe whatever they tell you, but then not what they do. So Jesus sort of sets the filter. Receive the word when they're teaching the word, filter out everything that they do, because all of their doings are just false, damnable righteousness. 
That, that's a very helpful explanation, and I, I appreciate. So the the point that Jesus is making is he's not he's not giving an excuse to follow a false teacher. Rather, he's he's showing the disciples and the crowds where the true authority lies, and it's it's not within the person, whether that person is false or true. The authority is in the Word of God, and I think that that th- that at least for me is going to help. That's helping me as I think through the, towards where we're going in terms of what Jesus says about not calling people rabbi or, or father or instructor. That that there too, what's the focus? The focus is on the authority that comes from the Word, which comes from the one true God. And so, having said all that, then this is not an excuse to follow a false teacher. Rather, no. it's a recognition the authority is in the Word of God. So, is, I mean, is that a yeah. fair way of, of summarizing all that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right that this is that does clearly pave the way for what Jesus will say in a minute about being called rabbi and father and uh, instructor and so forth. So, as as Jesus then starts to talk about some of the things that the scribes and Pharisees do in in verse four, he he talks about their they tie up these heavy burdens which are hard to bear, and they're putting them on people's shoulders, but but they themselves don't don't do these things. What are these heavy burdens that Jesus is talking about? So you mentioned earlier uh, and made reference back to to Matthew 15 about the extra traditions and the extra laws uh, that that the teachers of the Word have added on the Word to to form sort of a perimeter or a fence away from the, the law itself. So you know if you can keep these commandments Say, say, for instance, uh, interpretations about the, the third commandment, remembering the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Well, at the core, you've got the commandment, but then as you sort of move out, maybe like rings on, on a target, the, the commandment is the bullseye, but then you've got some rings beyond that that add on extra rules. So don't, you know, don't do any work on the Sabbath. Well, what does this mean? Well, we can't build fires, but we also can't even gather sticks in order to build fires. Um, and you see it's a similar thing even, even still today. You can't, you can't employ electricity on the Sabbath uh, in, a, in a Jewish mentality, or that's breaking the Sabbath. Um, but if we, allow, you know, if we program our elevators automatically to stop at every floor, and you don't have to push a button, then you're not actually using the electricity. Or if the oven has a, a pre-programmed Sabbath mode to it already, where, you know, by Friday afternoon, it's already simmering, and then it'll just stay on and cook at that low heat or keep things warm for that, at that low heat all throughout the Sabbath itself. You don't have to push any buttons. Therefore, you're not starting a fire, not gathering sticks. Um, so they, they add on all these extra laws beyond, beyond the Mosaic law in order to keep people away from getting to actually breaking the law itself. Now, we know that, that in so doing, they're ignoring the essence of the law. The law, is, the third commandment, is about hearing and receiving the Word of God, gladly hearing and learning it, which they obviously are not doing. The second commandment also is about um, calling upon the name of God in every trouble, as well as not misusing the name of the Lord. So it's not just a matter of not ever speaking the name Yahweh, but it's a matter of also calling upon the name of God, using it rightly. So for all their attempts at righteousness, they're not, they're not really getting them there, but all these extra laws are adding burdens onto the people. And, and the greatest burden 
is that they're teaching people that if you want to be righteous in God's sight, then, then you've got to keep all of these laws and regulations. And that's, that's the heavy burden that they're laying upon people. And yet they themselves are not willing to share any of that burden. But now Jesus, earlier in Matthew, Matthew eleven twenty eight, has set himself in contrast to this criticism here when he, when he says to the crowds, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. So though the Pharisees and the scribes are unwilling to lift even a finger to help with the law that they're, with the load that they're placing on the shoulders of all of their disciples, Jesus offers to his disciples to bear not just some of the load of the law, but all of it. He bears all the load of the law, becomes completely righteous in our place, and then also bears the condemnation of the law, bears the punishment that the law prescribes to lawbreakers when he dies on the cross. And in him, all of his disciples find absolute rest, pure Sabbath from from the law and also from obeying the law and earning righteousness before God, and then also the punishment that the law prescribes being cast out of God's presence, enduring eternal death and hell for our disobedience. He bears those on his shoulders and gives us the the lightness of his righteousness and our standing as a son before the Father himself. Now that that connection to Matthew twenty eight is is beautiful, and it, and it does it goes back to again that question that Jesus asked them at the end of the preceding chapter in chapter twenty two about whose son is the Christ. What does all this have to do with Jesus and who he is? And and this is the ultimate burden that the Pharisees are placing upon people is that they they're leading people away from Jesus. They're leading people toward their own works, toward a righteousness that they can accomplish, instead of leading them as Moses would do, leading them toward Christ and his righteousness that comes from outside of themselves. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFO, looking at the first part of Matthew chapter 23. We're going to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Wednesday, March 18th, we're studying Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12, with Pastor Jeff Hemmer of Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights. Pastor Hemmer, prior to the break, we were looking at, at what the Pharisees do that Jesus says, don't do these things, don't practice these things. And so we were talking about first that the burden that they lay upon people, that they would lead people toward a righteousness that is their own rather than the righteousness that is given freely by Christ. The next thing that, that Jesus brings up is, is he starts talking about how the Pharisees love to be seen. And we've, we've seen this come up in, in Matthew's gospel before, so that they're doing deeds to be seen by others. He mentions particularly their phylacteries and their fringes, which are, are things that maybe we're not familiar with what what is Jesus getting at in verses looks like five through seven? 
Yeah, so this uh, criticism that he begins this conversation with here, this, these couple of verses about doing all their deeds to be seen by others, takes you back to a, a similar warning in the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount as well, when, when he warns, uh, which we just heard the gospel reading for Ash Wednesday, he warns about practicing your righteousness before others in terms of prayer and fasting and giving to the needy. Um, these things rather Jesus exists to be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will will reward you. Here is another criticism of doing deeds in order to receive the praise of others. And then he's got these, these particular examples. Um, so a, a phylactery is a little, I think it's uh, like a leather box uh, with long straps, and, and it would have been used it would, it would contain little bits of, of the Word of God, uh, the commandments, as well as a couple other quotations from, from parts of, uh, uh, of the Torah in it, and it would be bound to the forehead uh, and also to the left wrist at, at times of prayer um, as, as a way of uh, observing, you know, write, writing all these things on your hearts, bind them to your foreheads, um, it would be a literal observance of that exhortation, binding the commandments to your forehead in terms of prayer. But now the Pharisees uh, have taken that one step farther, of course, and that is that not only are they literally binding the commandments to, to their foreheads and to their hands in times of prayer, but also going around with, with the commandments uh, in, in the phylacteries with, with the law bound to their foreheads, and uh, they, not just any old little phylactery uh, that might go unnoticed, but one that you can see from the other side of the street. They make their phylacteries broad, and the, the fringes, uh, likewise, from the uh, commandment that God gave to Moses, that uh, the people are to make four tassels on the corners of their garments um, with a blue cord in each tassel, uh, God commands in Numbers 15. And when you look on the castle, you are to remember the commandments of the Lord, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. So if they have, you know, great big tassels, these long fringes that are reminders of the commandments, then it's just one more way that they are parading around how much better they believe they are at keeping the commandments than everyone else, and how, how much more they're thinking about the Ten Commandments, how much more they're thinking about obeying the law of God. They've got long fringes constantly reminding them of the commandments. They've got phylacteries that they don't even stop to take off, that they're on their foreheads and their hands all the time, always meditating on the law of God so that Everyone will see and uh, be impressed with how righteous the Pharisees are. So all of this is is being done with the with the purpose of being seen. And you, you brought up Matthew chapter six. So it's it's not if it is seen, okay, but it's about the purpose of being seen, right? That that this is why the Pharisees are doing these things. And not, it's not just that it happens to be seen, but that that's what they want. That's that's their whole goal. And, and in so doing, they're drawing attention only to themselves, 
not to the word of God, which is what the the phylactery and the, the fringe were really both about, was about drawing attention to the word of God, not to the person. They're drawing attention to the, themselves. And, and in doing this, what's the effect on all these other people, Pastor Hammer? Well, the effect is that they despair of their own righteousness, their own ability to keep the law. So, First of all, the Pharisees are, are teaching the law as something doable and attainable, but then, but then they're demonstrating really the only ones who are able to do that law correctly are, are the Pharisees and the scribes. Everyone else should try to emulate the Pharisees and the scribes, but if we're being honest, they don't really have any hope of attaining that level of righteousness, of that level of observance of uh, of the law and obedience to the commandments that, that the Pharisees themselves demonstrate. It's just a further example of the heavy burden that they're placing upon the people that they themselves are, are unwilling to, to assist with. So part of, part of their love of being seen is also being uh, glorified. I suppose you might say, right? They, they like to be called, rabbi by others they like these greetings in the market they they want the top seat in so doing they not only do they bring all these people to despair but they they end up putting these others down they've they really reversed the point of of all of what good works are for what are good works actually for pastor hammer yeah exactly we uh we are to do good works um our, our faith is to be living and active but our good works are not to not just so that others will respect us or uh, give glory to us or esteem us for for how much righteousness we possess, but our works are for for the good of our neighbor, um, and and they're only done in faith uh, because with faith we have perfect trust of God. All the obedience of Jesus is credited to us. And we're set free from having to earn God's favor, uh, which frees us to live lives of of service and love for our neighbors in the context of our vocation, the callings that God gives us. Those are the people that we are set free from having to earn God's favor so that we can do what people need. Um, But the people God puts us in, um, in orbit around, we can our lives in service to them, knowing that all of our righteousness is already delivered to us because of the work of Jesus, because of the spirits imparting that righteousness, that holiness to us, uh, justifying us, sanctifying us in the word uh, and, and the sacraments. It's all of that for us, and then that motivates us and frees us to, to live lives of love and service towards our neighbors. Hmm. Which the, that's what the Pharisees are not doing. So Jesus, he he finishes up his. This is what the Pharisees are doing. That's that's wrong. This is what you should not do. And in verse eight, it seems he he turns a bit, and and now speaking to the crowds and disciples. Here's here's the the positive way to put this into practice. And he starts by saying, he, he starts talking about titles, right? He, he said how the Pharisees like their titles. They like to be called rabbi by others. And Jesus says, well, among you. Don't be called rabbi. There's only one teacher. Don't call a man on earth your father because you've got a father who's in heaven. Don't call anybody an instructor because there's only one instructor, the Christ. 
what what's Jesus getting at here, Pastor? I mean, to, to go to maybe the, the easiest one, verse 9, call no man your father on earth. I mean, I've, I've got four sons, and they call me dad or daddy, sometimes father. That's a bit more formal in, in English, but, but they call me dad, or I still call my dad dad. Am I breaking Jesus' commandment? What's the force of his words? What, what's going on here? Right. So, I mean, even, even the fourth commandment uh, is praying our having earthly fathers, honor your father and your mother. So the word of God, agreeing with, with the written word, the word is all, is all one. It's all unified. So you sort of set the stage for us earlier um, by saying that it's, that it's a question of authority. So when we call someone rabbi or teacher or father or instructor or leader, the the authority that they possess is not cells, uh, but the authority that they possess is is in what is given to them. So a teacher of the Word of God, Word is what possesses authority. Um, to to say that this and this also is how uh, Paul explains earthly fathers in writing to the church in Ephesus, he says that it is because of the, the Father in heaven, earthly fatherhood, so the authority resides not in earthly fathers themselves, but the authority is in the eternal fatherhood of the first person of the Holy Trinity. He's That's not an illustration whereby, because we know what earthly fathers are, we have a window into what God the Father is like. It's the other way around. It's because God is eternally Father. He calls men who have children by his own title. He calls them Father. So we understand what an earthly father does because of the eternal fatherhood of God. Um, and so the, the, it's, it's a question of authority about, about all of these things. Um, a large catechism in Luther's uh, treatment of the fourth commandment, he'll talk about we have really three different kinds of fathers. We have our, our earthly, our biological fathers, uh, those to whom belongs the care of the family, uh, and then we have uh, the fathers in the state, those to whom belongs the care of the country, and then he says, yet there are still spiritual fathers. Um, and, and those are the ones who, um, like a father towards his children, um, deliver to us the Word of God, catechize us, and, and care for us. St. Paul will, will say to the Corinthians that I became your father through the gospel. Um, he'll speak of uh, himself as being his father, a father in the faith. And he'll regularly refer, and so he'll regularly refer to his hearers as as my little children. Now that doesn't mean that the authority resides in Paul when he calls himself a father. It means that the authority resides in God the Father Himself. So what what the Pharisees and the scribes are doing, they want the authority to reside in themselves because they they've rejected the word of the Father. They've rejected all the promises of the Messiah. In, in rejecting Jesus as the Christ, they have, they have 
tried to shift authority away from the Word, away from God, uh, into themselves. You should trust me because I am your Father, not because as your Father I'm giving you the, the pure, unadulterated Word of God. And so the, the same is true of, of being called rabbi or being called instructor, being called teacher, being called leader. All of these are, are words used of human beings, but, but the authority never resides in the human being, and we don't give them the title because, because of who that person is. Um, we, we give them the title because of the authority that has been imparted to them externally. So Jesus' words in verses 8 through 10 are not an outright prohibition of using these titles. So it, it's not, just to go with the Father, it's, it's not wrong for my kids to call me Dad, nor, nor would it be wrong for, for a pastor to be called, fa- like if someone here were to call me Father Apple, as, as sometimes when I'm, when I'm wearing my clerical around town and I'm met by a Roman Catholic, they'll address me as Father. That, that title in and of itself, just the use of it, is not wrong. Rather, it's the, it's the matter of authority, and that, that's the key, is to recognize when you call me that, or, or when I address someone, to recognize where the authority actually lies. And when we put that authority in the human being, whether we're the person who has the title or the person using the title, it can be abused and misused. That, that's Jesus' point. Exactly. I mean, uh, pastors as fathers, taking the example of Paul and, uh, and John, and uh, he'll say elsewhere, you have many fathers— um, at the pastor as father is, is a regular New Testament description of, of the work of those in, in the pastoral office, but not right in the same way that a father who, who comes home and says, everybody's going to do what I say because I'm the father. Uh, that's, that's an abuse of the role that he's been called into. Um, but rather, there's, there's a deep affection for those to whom Paul has been giving the word. When he says, I became your father, there's, there's a fatherly kind of love that, that flows from that illustration. Um, and so um, in, in the same way that you know, we say, if, if God is for us, he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also graciously with, us, with him give us all things? Right? If, if God is for us, the Father is for us, who can be against us? So children should, should be able to have that kind of trust of their earthly fathers. I mean, that's it's an authority that doesn't come from the man, but from the office that the father is called into. If dad is for us, who can be against us? Or parishioners of, of their pastor, right? If the pastor is for us, who can be against us? Because we trust that he brings us the Word of God, and he has our good in mind over against his own good. A father is truly a, a sacrificial role. A rabbi, a sacrificial role. A teacher, an instructor is a, a sacrificial role that seeks the good of those who are being fathered or taught or instructed or led more than the good of the one who occupies the office of rabbi or father or instructor. So, I mean, this, this is really taking us into a, a conversation on, on vocation, then, I think, and, and what does it mean to live in, in relation to the neighbors that God has given me, depending on, on the role? And, and so, from, for example, from the perspective of, of pastor, the, the danger that I think that Jesus would be, would be addressing is that you know, I, maybe I let that title go to my head. 
and and think somehow that I've earned it, that that God put me there because I'm such an awesome dude, rather than to recognize God put me there to serve, or or then maybe from from the other side, from from the hearer, that that they they fall in love with the pastor as as a man and think that oh he's the only one that could be our pastor rather than than recognizing him as the servant god has placed in their midst to give the word and that's where the i mean again it comes back to the authority and and when we get that authority straight then it seems like we get our our vocation straight too and this also takes about good works and for whom are our good works and they are our neighbor think of the way in which the the table of duties Orients. I mean, it begins with uh, to pastors, bishops, and preachers, and it focuses them on the good of their hearers. And then the next section, what the hearers pastor, focuses the hearers on on the good of their pastors. I mean, how much more peaceful would would voters' meetings uh, and you know other interactions between pastor and preachers of a congregation be if the pastor is always looking to the good of the hearers of the word, always looking to to the good of the pastor, and and no one was ever saying, "I only love these people uh, because of who they are," or "I only love and and listen to my pastor because of who he is." No, the office of hearer and the office of preacher—that um, is what God established and then calls various people, various, and we owe them love and honor and respect because of the office. The authority comes from the outside in and not because of the person who, who inhabits that office for the moment. Jesus, then, he, it seems like verses 11 summarize this section here before he will move, as you said, into the woes that, that come at the, the long end of this chapter. How, how does Jesus summarize in verses 11 and 12 much of what he's taught already? Well, it summarizes what we've just been talking about as well. The greatest among you shall be your your friend or your, your minister. The one who, I mean, this is the, it's the same word uh, in, in the book of Acts when the apostles are overwhelmed with freedom, they can't also the ministry uh, of peoples, of, of caring for the poor and the marginalized, so they appoint deacons. Um, to take on some some more of that service, some more of that ministry. Um, well, that's that's what ministry truly is. So the greatest among you shall be your servant. And that the building that um, the world in the servant, the minister, doing that ministering role highly, rather. That, that that work itself is esteemed highly, that God else is, is willing to call it great. The greatest among you is the one who serves the lowest, such that whoever exalts himself will, and that's a, an active verb, I exalt myself, will be humble, because uh, someone from outside is humbling me if I exalt myself. But whoever humbles himself takes the lowest place, the, the servile posture, the role of, of, of minister, will self be exalted. Again, passive verb, someone else does the exalting. So who is the one who humbles the, the one exalted? 
and exalts the humble. Well, that sounds a lot like the uh, the song of uh, of Saint Mary, Magnificat. This is the work of the Lord. He brings down the proud, those who exalt themselves, exalts those of of low state. So, and the goal is not is not to be exalted. Oh, I'm going to humble myself so that God will exalt me. But but the goal is is that you'll find joy in serving in that humble posture. And that, that is why exalts. And this is exactly the opposite of what the Pharisees and the scribes have been doing. Their works are in order to exalt themselves uh, so that others may see them and give them these honorific titles and be impressed with the their phylacteries and the length of their fringes. And that that is a kind of false righteousness, false doing the Word of God that causes others to despair. And, and God is so irked at those false teachers and their pridefully exalting themselves that, that He will topple them. He, he will bring them down low. But the one willing to receive the Word and to be under the authority of the Word as a, as a teacher or as a father or rabbi or um, who who only looks for the good of others in his good works, the good of his neighbor, the good of those he's been called to serve and to minister to. God is so delighted with that service that that, that is the person he will exalt. Pastor Hammer, we've got just about three minutes left here on the morning. And, and with these words here from Jesus at the end about, about being the greatest by being a servant, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Perhaps the way to to finish this out and wrap it up is to think about what our Lord himself has has done. You mentioned the word servant there that's used in Acts chapter 6. It's also used back in Matthew chapter 20 where, where Jesus says the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How do, how do we see our Lord Jesus exemplify these last two verses for us. Sure. Well, what what greater uh, humility is there than that the eternal second person of the Trinity would become man, would bind himself to flesh, would become a creature himself, would become our brother, would in the in the words of of the hymn that Paul quotes to to the Philippians uh empty himself or set aside all the the rights and privileges of his making himself nothing um and not just nothing as as a human but nothing as the most despised human ever the one bearing all the sins of all the sinners of all time in his own body that that mean he, there's nothing in him that should be desirable, as the prophet Isaiah says, no beauty in him, uh, not, no reason for us to seek him, but instead we, we hate him. He's despised, uh, rejected by men. He's absolutely the lowest because he bears all the world's sins and humbles himself all the way to the shameful death, the, the torture that precedes it, and then being hung upon a cross naked, exposed as a criminal, a death that, that Moses in Deuteronomy calls a, an accursed death being hanged upon a tree. That is the 
most humiliating, lowest point that any human being could ever be brought to. And then on the cross is, is in fact, rejected by God the Father. Uh, my God, my God, he cries out, why have you forsaken me? There's no lower place that you can go. And then the writer of Hebrews will, will pick up this question and say that though God made him for a moment lower than the angels, in him, in his resurrection, and then in his ascension, and his being seated at the right hand of God the Father, he, Jesus, is exalted. And with him, because from the moment of his incarnation, he is eternally a man as well, in his exaltation, all men are exalted, all men are raised up. The humanity of all people is elevated in his ascension, because a human being sits at the right hand of God the Father, we have a brother who lives now to intercede for us, to bring our brotherly concerns before his heavenly Father himself. So he is humbled to the absolute lowest point and exalted to the absolute highest point. And in that, then, we, we are exalted as well. Sins removed able to stand before the presence of a holy God. This is the inversion, absolute antithesis of what the Pharisees are calling people to do. They say, you can win heaven by your good works, but only if you are as good as we are. And Jesus says, you can receive heaven by my good works, by my righteousness, which I will give to you freely as a gift, so that you, when the law humbles you and brings you down low, exposes you as the worst sinner imaginable, are then exalted with his mercy and his forgiveness and his gifts of eternal life and stand before the Father as, as a son, brother of Christ. Pastor Jeff Hemmer is the pastor at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, helping us this morning with Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. Pastor Hemmer, thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.